So guys, let's let's talk together and do me a favor, Jan. I need your help on this because without the microphone, when I kick into my conspiratorial whisper, um, no one will hear me. And um, so the microphone helps on that a lot. So if I start to do my conspiratorial whisper, correct me. Even if I'm looking at you, because then they can't hear me, okay? So um, guys, we are on page 714 in the Tapestry Bibles. The scripture is going to appear behind me. It's on the internet for you, and it's on the paper that is probably underneath your rear. So you have lots of different places for the scripture. This is what it says from verse 27 of the 8th chapter of the gospel according to what? Oh, I started it beforehand. Thank you. Um, the gospel according to Mark. Starting at verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages and around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them. All right, I'm going to read the rest of scripture, but, but I want to point something out here that, that you may already know. Um, let's, let's pretend, and I, I say pretend here for a very obvious reason because it's not true, but let's pretend that I am the smartest person in the room. Thank you, Pete. I appreciate it. Thumbs, thumbs up in the pretend part. As the smartest person in the room, again, pretend. I don't know why I just put quotes on pretend. That's like I'm saying I am the smartest person in the room, which makes me the dumbest person in the room. But as the smartest person in the room, who's going to be asking the questions? Yeah, why would you say that? Because you got all the answers. That's the way we think quite often. And to, to, to let you know that while we are very different from, from ancient Near Eastern Jews, how similar they are uh, to us at the exact same time. Do you know what the tradition was for disciples who were following their rabbi? Do you know who it was that would typically ask the questions? The disciples. Yeah, the exact same people. They would ask the rabbi, or the ribi, uh, which is much more fun to say, um, they would ask him, and it would almost always be a him. Actually, it would not almost always be a him. It would be a him. They would ask him the questions because he was the one who had all the answers. And yet, here we see, and this is not the only time, who's asking the questions? Jesus is. He's so different from what we expect, even in that. And yes, you can go, it's the Aristotelian method. Aristotle asked questions. Yes, he did. But Aristotle was not an ancient Near Eastern Jew. This is completely different from the culture of the time. Jesus is already changing things, even though he's saying, yes, I am your rabbi. It is appropriate for you to follow me, but let me ask you this question. I, I think we do the same thing. We put Jesus in this stereotype of this is how you're supposed to act. And I think he smashes us right in the face sometimes. He's like, no, sorry. That's not the way I'm going to act. So it starts out here. Jesus is walking with his disciples, which would have been completely common and ordinary for them to happen. Uh, think of disciples kind of like modern day stalkers that are just not as aggressive and maybe not as destructive. Uh, one of my personal favorite stories is, one of the stories is that, that uh, certain disciples would follow their ribby, their rabbi, uh, to, I know, it's just more fun to say, isn't it? Um, to, they would follow him when he went to use the restroom in case he might say a prayer afterwards. They were afraid that if they didn't follow him, they would miss it. My first thought is, is if you have to pray afterwards, I don't want to be around you. But, but... Guys, that's when I say stalker, I mean, it's 
don't think of the aggressive, ter destructive person like that, where it's just awful. But I mean, that's the type of mindset of, I have to be around him that much. Uh, so stalker is a bad illustration, but we just don't have students the same way, where a student is just like, I will follow you beyond belief. A groupie is, yeah, there we go. That, that'll work. Yes, sir, Jacob. To who? You can follow Pete all you want. Think <laughs> about the world. <laughs> Just don't mess with Robin, okay? <laughs> I'm protecting you. Yeah, I don't know about Pete. Okay, so back to the scripture, which is more important. I'm sorry about my rant. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea and Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Now, for some of us raised in church, this is one of those passages that you hear a lot. Because it really is this amazing statement. Uh, and if you look at the Matthew version of this, and I was going to put on the, the website, uh, the message website, the cross-references here, uh, but I didn't. This should be Matthew 16, uh, the 16th chapter of Matthew, if I remember correctly. Um, in the Matthew version, we actually have where the Catholic Church gets its mindset that the Pope is the head of the church. What he says is, hey, Peter, because of your confession, you are the rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and I'll give you the keys to the, uh, the kingdom, and anything you, you bind will be bound, and anything you loosen will be loosened. I'm paraphrasing a little bit there. But he basically makes this statement. We're not going to talk about that. If you'd like, we can talk about it next week. It's really very fascinating because the Greek there, and I don't go to Greek a lot on stuff, uh, but the Greek there is actually really, really interesting because Peter is the rock, singular masculine, which makes sense because Peter is a guy. And upon this rock, feminine, plural. I will build my church. So if we're going to say that Peter's the head of the church, and I love Peter. I think Peter's amazing. Okay, I think I would really like hanging out with Peter because he screws up a lot, but he follows Jesus. He's the one who, some people say, hey, Peter has a foot-shaped mouth, which I understand. I had a friend who used to say that Peter was the Barney Five of the New Testament. But what I love about Peter is he's one of these guys who jumps. I'd much rather be around somebody who's going to jump than somebody who's going to debate whether or not you should jump. I, I, I think that's why Jesus loved him. It was like, yeah, you mess up, but nobody else got out of the boat and walked on water, okay? So I love Peter. But if we're going to say he's the head of the church, then either Peter has changed gender suddenly or Jesus was saying something different in that passage. We can talk about it another time if you want. But it's not in the Gospel of Mark, so we're not going to say it. An interesting thing here, if you want to debate on that, uh, does anybody know the tradition of uh, where we get the Gospel of Mark? And don't say Mark wrote it, uh, even though that's correct. You know where it comes from? A guy named John Mark, who, it's a very interesting story, because John Mark goes on a mission trip with Barnabas and Paul. Those names should sound slightly familiar to a lot of you. Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Barnabas and Paul have John Mark go with him. He's very young. He gets homesick. He goes back home, and Paul gets thoroughly ticked off. 
to the point that when they go on another mission trip, Barnabas says, hey, we should take John Mark with us. He's really grown. He's amazing. And Paul goes, I don't want that coward going with me. And Barnabas and Paul split at this point because Barnabas says it's really, really important that we take John Mark with us. John Mark then hangs out with Barnabas, and then he starts hanging out with another guy named Peter. And the tradition is that the gospel according to Mark, John Mark, is the gospel that was told to him by the apostle Peter. Isn't it interesting that the, the gospel most, most assuredly connected to Peter is the one that leaves out the story of, Peter, you are the rock, and upon this rock. Side note. Here's what I want to talk about instead. Uh, we're going to hit the question that would primarily be hit, but we're going to hit it from a different angle. Because this is the center. It's not just the center in, in words. It is literally the, the center of Jesus' ministry, and things are about to take a weird change. So, the first eight chapters that we were talking about are this. And this is what's been happening with the ministry of Jesus. He starts out with a few people. He starts gathering people. And he starts drawing rock star style crowds. And when I say rock star, I mean literally arena rock star type crowds. The governor? What? Like the governor? Um, not the governor, but there were some high officials that followed him. Our governor. Our go oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I, I zone out political talk in here. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't even think that. <laughs> you got to remember, there are, one of the things I love about Tapestry is we are a mixed up people. <laughs> One of the things that makes a statement like that dangerous is we are a mixed up people. Here's what I care about. You go vote your convictions. I care about that a lot. Um, no, not like that. I mean more like Bon Jovi. Okay, I'm dating myself here. But there could have been as many as 35,000 people following Jesus at one time. Now, think of, of the entire city of Stevens Point. Stevens Point itself, I think last census was 27,000 people. Does that sound right? All right, and, and my understanding is Portage County is 90,000 people, and about 70,000 people of those live within 10, uh, 10 miles of St the Point area, not Stevens Point, but Clover, so forth and so on. Half of the area of the Point area, all following Jesus. That's going to be a big deal. It's going to be a huge deal. And, and 35,000 people following somebody now would be big. But think about when the population was significantly less than what it is now. Almost 7 billion people in the world right now would have been far less than a billion people in the world at that time. 35,000 following him. That's a huge thing. That is a monstrous crowd of people that are following him. But, well, the rest of the gospel is this. Okay. You, you read the rest of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, I can't tell you where it is in, in Matthew and Luke where it starts. Around chapter 6 of John is where it starts. Uh, guys, it goes from this large crowd following Jesus to when he was crucified, there were probably somewhere between 300 and 500 people following him. Now, if Tapestry became 35,000 people, and I would say God forbid, but, but I actually think that God wants to spread out. He just never wants tapestry to be that big. Uh, our goal would be 35,000 people divided by 100, what, that'd be 3,500 churches? That'd be okay. I could live with that. No, that wouldn't be right. 
be 350 churches. That would be okay. Um, but let's say we reach 35,000 people. And then suddenly we shrink to 500. What are people going to say about tapestry? Yeah, you think? I mean, really. Yeah. I mean, realistically, we got to get rid of him, which might be a wise move. Okay, you might want to consider it. But it, it would be everybody. Oh yeah, nobody follows him anymore. Uh, if you if you're a baseball fan, I love Yogi Berra. Yogi Berra was the catcher for uh, for the New York Yankees when when Mantle was playing. I mean, just an incredible guy. The Bronx Bombers. He was amazing. And Yogi Berra had this this way of saying something that made no sense that made perfect sense. And he makes this one statement: "That place is so popular, nobody ever goes there anymore." It, it, it makes sense because you know it got so big that everybody stopped going to it, and then it just dwindled. Jesus hit this peak of a ton of people and then drops down to 500 and, and by the time of his resurrection like I say three to five hundred people and then the church just goes just flows up and it all starts right here Peter's confession is the turning point of the gospel of Mark everything else has been building up and it's not falling down after that Jesus is is reaching a point where he's like now I can really teach you now I can really teach you and get you to be a true follower of me. And I think it comes down to this. What is with this? Here we go. See, a lot of people started leaving him because they didn't like what he started to teach. And it wasn't that his teaching had changed at all. It was that they misunderstood. There's this wonderful little word called context. Anybody know who George Takei is? Okay, I love George Takei. George Takei is Sulu from Star Trek. And on Facebook, he posts the most amazing photos ever. He, he posts the best illustration of context I've ever seen. So here it is. If you see this photo, is that a good scene or a bad scene? Why would you say bad? They look like what? They look like they're in pain. They look like they're struggling. They look like they're dying. What do they look like now? <laughs> and I, I thought about adding music to it just for the fun of it. Exact same pose. What changed? Context. The stuff going on around it. And we all understand that. You can say the same phrase in one context and it means something entirely different in the other context. If you are a big sarcasm fan, which I am sometimes to my detriment, which is why sometimes I try to say something nice and instead it sounds like I'm a rude pain in the booty because um, I'm saying it and the people around me don't understand the context that I'm saying it in, or probably more appropriately, I don't understand the context I'm saying it in. Context matters. So when, when Peter says, you are the Christ, there's a context that happens with that. There's an understanding of what the Messiah means, and that understanding is this. This is Maccabee. Okay? If you have a Jewish friend at all, they have this big celebration that is their substitute for Christmas. Actually, it's not their substitute for Christmas, but they treat it that way sometimes because people like to get gifts, and when everybody else in the culture is getting gifts, and you don't get a gift because you're a nice little Jewish boy or girl, it's kind of sad, so they come up with this wonderful celebration, and does anybody know what it's called? Yom 
Hanukkah. Nobody cares. No, that's not right. <laughs> Hanukkah, which is just a celebration of the fact that the oil that was supposed to have lasted for one day lasted how many days? Eight. Right. I want you to think about that for a second. Who would ever be like, wow, the oil lasted a long time. Let's throw a party. No, <laughs> you don't do that. You don't do that. But the Maccabean Revolution, which took place at about 165 uh, B.C. and lasted till about 60-something B.C., um, was a big, huge deal because the Jewish nation threw off its invaders. And the Maccabees were referred to as messiahs. Anointed ones is literally what it means in scripture. And, and the, this word had been used of Cyrus, the king of Persia. It had been used of other kings before. It was a person who was the one anointed of God to bring them deliverance. Which makes sense. But then the people of Jesus' time figured out this time it's going to last forever. And the Messiah's job is to kick Rome out of our land. Literally, to push them back into the Mediterranean Sea was the mindset. So when Peter says, you are the Christ, there's a context. That context is, everybody around, the, around us thinks that the Messiah is the one who's going to get rid of Rome, and you are the Christ. We know that disciples continue to think this because in the book of Acts, they continue to say things like this. So when they met together, this is after Jesus' resurrection, uh, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Still, after his resurrection, the mindset was, oh, hey, are you going to bring it all back now? The problem is Jesus is not that type of Messiah. I would really prefer a Messiah that got everything right and, and brought about wonderful things, which he does, but brought about wonderful things that I liked. But the Messiah that Jesus is, the Messiah that Scripture was calling for, the Messiah that he lived out, is not the Messiah that fits all of our expectations of health and wealth and security. He's the suffering servant instead. It's a theme throughout Scripture. Um, this is why Rome would put this across his head, or not across his head, excuse me, that would be a tattoo, but on top of the cross, I-N-R-I, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Because that is a legitimate threat to Rome. That is a crucifiable offense. Being the suffering servant, as far as Rome was concerned, was not a crucifiable offense. But when, when he was asked, are you the King of the Jews? And he responds with it as you say. That is considered a conspiratorial statement. That is considered a statement that is anti-patriotic. That is treason. Look at how we treat people for treason. The Romans of the day knew that the Jews of the day were looking for a Messiah that would kick them out of there. Or just randomly drop things, one of the two. But Jesus wasn't this Messiah. He wasn't the one who came as the king of the Jews that they were expecting. He was one who came instead as a suffering servant. So why is this the turning point? Well, who is he talking to at this time? Do you remember? He's talking to Peter. Peter is a disciple. Okay, does anybody know where that word comes from? 
Okay, so many of our church words come from, from Latin, a Latin interpretation of a Greek word, of a Greek word that is an interpretation of a Hebrew word. So we're going to go backwards a little bit, okay? Here's the Latin word. We are not a Roman Catholic church. We don't speak Latin, but so much of our English language has been affected by this. Discipleus is the Latin word for, you want to take a wild guess? Disciple, yes. Which is the, the Latin word for the Greek word that is in the New Testament. You will never find disciples in the New Testament unless you are reading a Latin New Testament that Jerome wrote off of the Greek New Testament. But in the Greek, instead, it is this. It is Matthias. Matthias means disciple. Now, the, the issue is this. Jesus probably didn't speak Greek. He may have, but he probably didn't. What we know he spoke was Aramaic, and he would have understood Hebrew because he was a good Jew. He had uh, gone through the temple. He would have understood Hebrew. The Hebrew word for disciple is this. It's taladim. And it doesn't mean disciple because the word disciple didn't exist until the Latin was anglicized. Instead, it means learner. I love that. It, it yeah, means what? learner. Learner. Or apprentice would be a good modern word for it. The problem is that they didn't have the apprentice structure at that time, so you can't really say this means apprentice. A student. Peter was supposed to be the learner of Jesus. Jesus says, who do people say I am? And they say, all of these old religious leaders that we look to and we respected, and, and they think you're him. Excuse me, or they think you are one of them, one of these old religious leaders that are highly respected. And uh, who do you think I am? And Jesus goes, you're the Christ. But there's this whole context that the Christ is the one who is the warrior king. He's the one who will come back and will win the war against Rome and kick them out. Jesus starts to teach them the Messiah is nothing like that. Messiah is not the one who's coming to defeat Rome by being more powerful. The Messiah is the one who's coming to win the world by suffering. I think the next portion is from Isaiah. This is uh, from part of one of uh, four uh, songs in Isaiah that are known as the, the servant songs. They're all references to the Messiah. You can read the whole thing. This is just verses 7 through 9. I would encourage you to read the whole thing. It starts in the 12th verse of the 52nd chapter, and then it's all of the 53rd. It's all about how God will suffer. See, I don't know about you, but I would love it if God came and put, made everything right. I, I would prefer that, to be completely honest. I have enough friends in my life who have gone through real suffering. I have suffered. I have not gone through real suffering. But I have been with people who have gone through real suffering. And I would much prefer if he would just come and put it right. And I know he can. For some reason, he doesn't. I don't understand why. What I know is, from my experience, is that he's loving and he's good even when I want to shout at him. There's a guy named Victor Frankl who wrote a book called Man's Search for Inner Meaning. I may have actually mentioned it to some of you before because I love it. Um, he makes this statement where he says, sometimes you just need somebody to shout at the dark with you.
I don't have all the answers on, on the suffering. What I know is, is Peter wanted somebody who was going to come and be powerful and strong and defeat all the evil. And, and what happened instead was basically Jesus said, um, no, I'm going to suffer. Everything changes at this point. Everything changes. You're about to see that Jesus is going to start. He's not going to chase people away from him. People are going to start going, oh, that's not what I wanted. Matter of fact, if you read in your Bible, the very next passage of Scripture, Peter starts telling Jesus, I'm sorry, that's not the way it goes. Peter starts saying, no, 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 that's not the, what happens with the Messiah. And he says that when Jesus says, oh, by the way, I'm about to go to Jerusalem and die. And Peter's like, no, you can't do that. That's not the way it happens. Because the thought of a Messiah who would be suffering and humiliated and die on a cross was unimaginable for an ancient Near Eastern Jew. To die in a situation that would, consider, but would be considered by everyone cursed is unimaginable. It's like us imagining the Chicago Cubs actually winning the World Series. It's never going to happen. I'm sorry. <laughs> yes. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Never gonna happen. But guys, yes, sir. You could almost see why then they would put doubt that he's the Messiah. Yeah. Because he's not living up to their standard. Now, the video I, I asked you to remember a phrase at was it started off with surrendering ownership. And he's talking about the birth of Jesus, but he's talking about how we own this. But the reality is we don't. See, the Jews thought they owned the Messiah. They thought that they owned the concept of the Messiah, that they understood it better than anyone else. And Jesus came and he lived out all of his scripture, his Jewish scripture. He lived it all out and he said, no, no, I'm not who you think I am. I'm God. I am God and you follow me. I don't follow what you think. And when I first became a Christian, this, this, uh, I was, was told, I needed to focus on what Peter said. You know, Jesus said, who do you think I am? And Peter responded, well, you are the Christ. And that's a great start. It really is. It's a wonderful start to realize I need to be able to proclaim that he is the Messiah. But the problem is that sometimes we think that after we become a follower of Christ that we suddenly own him and we understand him perfectly. And I think a lot of times he's wanting to ask us again, who do you say I am? Who do you say that I am? Because I don't think the real question that needs to be answered is how do we answer his question? I think the real question that needs to be answered is, the way we answer his question, how close is it to his reality? See, I say he's the Messiah, but I have certain ideas that go along with that. And they're still stupid, just like some of the ancient Near Eastern Jews' mindset of the Messiah is going to come and, and defeat Rome, but instead he defeats Rome by, by dying. I still think sometimes of this Jesus that is more like a plastic Jesus than the real Jesus. This Jesus, when I cry out, he lets go of all my pain. But the reality is sometimes he's just there with me. This Jesus, he helps me uh, when I'm writing a paper that is really killing me, which is right now. I'm writing a paper that's really killing me. But right now what Jesus is saying to me is, hey, Robert, you should have been studying more. 
Let's get to work. Sometimes Jesus is there with me when I am hurting beyond belief. I have seen Jesus show up into rooms that I thought there's no way this pain can be relieved. And other times, I've seen him just not show up and I don't understand why. Because he is God. I don't own him. He doesn't have to answer to me. And yet he he makes his voice known sometimes. Everything in the Gospel of Mark is about to change. Because now Jesus has gotten them to the point that they actually can be his teledim, his learners. And what they're going to learn about him is going to shake them to the core. And it should shake you and I. I I wonder if Jesus really walked into a lot of our churches. What the context would be for his real words and how they're interpreted. I, I hope that if Jesus walked in here, he'd be very pleased. I think he would be very pleased with some of us. And then he would probably look at me and be like, what are you doing? I think Jesus would walk in to some of us who are suffering and some of us who haven't been following him for, uh, for very long and be like, you're doing awesome. This is incredible. See, I, I do think that when Peter started sinking, we treat it like Jesus is like, you have oh, uh, so little faith. And sometimes we treat it like Jesus is like, you have so little faith. But he could have also been like, so little faith. Just an entirely different thing. A, a friendly tone of, wow, you walked pretty good while, but so little faith. Versus like... You're just a loser. I think Jesus would walk in here and with some of us who are suffering and some of us who who haven't been following him for a while, he's going to be like, yeah, this is awesome. And some of us, me, who think we've got it, I think Jesus probably would go, you just don't get it. You think I'm like you. I want you to be like me. So I'll end with this. There's a guy named Albert Schweitzer. Albert Schweitzer is a pretty famous missionary, also a piano player. I don't know why they go together. He's also a medical doctor. Apparently he did everything. But uh, Albert Schweitzer made this one statement about these theologians in the early 19th century who were trying to describe Jesus. They were, they were describing Jesus, and Jesus looked exactly like them. We would never do that. We would never do that. I know you would never do that. Well, okay, maybe I did. But... Uh, Jesus said, or excuse me, Albert Schweitzer said that when he heard them talk about Jesus, he thought of a man who was looking down at a well and looking down at the water and saw his own reflection and went, wow, it's Jesus. And we all know that's dumb. Only an idiot does that. But I'm here to say I'm the idiot quite often. Who do you say that he is? Scripture says he's the suffering servant. The Jews of the day said that he was going to be the Messiah who came and defeated Rome. Uh, He proved them wrong. Does does your Jesus look more like you? Or are we looking a little more like him every day? I don't know the answer of that for you. Uh, 
but I hope you ask him that question. And he, he starts to say, hey, you're looking a lot like me in this area, in this area, in this area. We might could work on this one. So let's pray. I'm getting that thumbs up in the back. I'm not sure if that's like, shut up now and let's go. <laughs> um, let's pray and let's sing a couple of songs, okay? Pray with me, please. Father, um, forgive me for the times that I act like I own Jesus. And, and help me to realize that I am owned by him instead. Help all of us this week to live in such a way that we look a little more like him. Be that in our suffering or in our victory. May we resemble him. I pray this in his name. Amen. Ladies and gents, let's sing.